All right, everybody. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATAS, your all Clancy Brown, all the time speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. I am back with yet another bonus episode, another episode commissioned by one of our really generous Patreon supporters. We're going to be talking about the classic classic Robert Heinlein novel, Starship Troopers. This was published in 1959, and there was no way that I was going to talk about a book about soldiering without my own comrade, Brandon Buddha. Brandon, of course, is my co-host on Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast, and, and also on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. He's been here before. Welcome back to ATAS, Brandon. Well, thanks. It's good to be back. I, I'm so excited to talk about Starship Troopers. Uh, this is a book that's like required reading in the military. I don't know if it is now, but like, you know, there's a commandant's book list or something like that. And this is always on it. Uh, so I read it back first when I was like 19 or 20 and I've read it two or three times since then. It was great to revisit it with, well, I'm excited to revisit it with you first of all, and have a talk about it. That's not fueled by insomnia or booze, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, you know, I'm also really glad to be here. I'm really grateful for the patron who commissioned this episode to give us an opportunity to talk about this book that I don't know, we've probably both read a lot and and I don't know how often we've talked about it. So uh, thank you for the commission and thanks for the opportunity to, I don't know, be on ATOS and, and chat about Starship Troopers for a long, long time. Yeah, thank you so much for the commission. Commissions are really a huge part of how the network stays in operation. It's how we how we stay on the air, how we get to keep making episodes. So thank you so much for making that possible. Uh, yeah, we we're, we're gonna have a lot to say about this book. I think for you know not being a particularly long book, uh, we're gonna have a lot to say about it. And so our plan is actually we're gonna do two episodes on it. And look, Starship Troopers is basically three stories in one book. There's a basic training story. There's the story of the bug war. And then there's an entire story that is about the class called history and moral philosophy. And so this episode, we're going to talk about those first two stories about the the military fiction narrative here. And then in the second episode, we're going to zoom in on this history class or two history classes, really, that the the narrator takes. So so this episode here, the, the military fiction episode, we're just going to start by going over the premise of the book, the structure as well. We'll give a little bit of a a synopsis. And then we're going to talk about the depiction of army life in this book, mostly, I think, in terms of our own experiences in the American army. And then we'll finish up by looking at Heinlein's writing craft. We'll put our own writing hats on here and and think about this book. But uh, you've alluded to this already, Brandon, to kick this off, right? We we have got to talk about our experiences with this story, because at least from our perspective, everyone in the world has some experience with this story. So uh, what's yours, Brandon? Well, I, I mean, I first came across this story in the form of the movie, which came out when I was in seventh grade. And uh, I remember hearing about this in seventh grade because of the boys who were allowed to see it uh, kind of tittering about the co-ed shower scene in the <laughs> locker room in gym class. Um, so, I mean, of course, that's going to stick in a seventh boy, a seventh grade boy's mind. And uh, so I, I don't I don't know how long after that, maybe within a couple years. But Starship Troopers, the film has become one of my favorite movies. And I, we're not going to do a comparison here, but I will say that in terms of streamlining the narrative, uh, even though the movie is a parody of the novel, the 
streamlining of the narrative is way more emotionally effective than the way it functions in the story. And that's for really in the novel. And that's for really specific reasons. Uh, but as I said, kind of at the top here, I came across the novel while I was in the army and I still have the paperback edition that I got uh, way back then, 15 years ago or so. So I read it. Uh, I loved it. Uh, I still love the book. I don't really have a lot in agreement with it anymore, but man, Heinlein has done some really exceptional things in pulling off this story. And, uh, I, I don't hate novels that I disagree with. It gives me something to think about and kind of sharpen my own thoughts. So, uh, great novel. I think even if it's, you know, in the parlance of our times, problematic. <laughs> <laughs> well, your experience, your experience does not quite mirror my own, but I think sort of runs parallel to it. Uh, I encountered the movie first, just like you did, but I was already in the army when the movie came out. That was 1997. And in fact, I was at AIT at Fort Huachuca, a place you and I have both been been stationed <laughs> when we were in the in the military. I saw it at the Post Theater there. Uh, also saw Wild Things there. I, I think whoever was running the Post Theater just it was all Denise Richards all the time. Maybe that's the, the tag I should have should have opened with here on the on the episode. <laughs> There were a lot of hard R movies playing at the Post Theater when I was there as well. So I don't know, man. Maybe that's just what they were going for. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's how when I saw the movie. And I did really, really enjoy the movie. I've actually not watched it in a, a decade at this point, though. It used to be something. It was kind of a staple. We used to throw it on right on, on game nights all the time. So it was just kind of always on in the background. But I then read the novel when I got to my, my duty station following training in the Army, but not because... I had seen the movie and enjoyed it. Uh, in fact, when I got Starship Troopers out of the, the local library, I didn't actually make the connection that it had anything to do with that movie I had seen in AIT, you know, two years previously. Uh, one of the main features of my time in the army was uh, not having enough money to do anything in my free time. And so just making great use of the fact that uh, I was in an area that had really good libraries and decided that I wanted to give myself a crash course in science fiction. This actually was kicked off by the fact that I had been given uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy, which I was reading while uh, very briefly stationed uh, somewhere else before getting to my, uh, my final duty station and said, I want to read more science fiction. And so I was just using the library to do that. I had encountered Heinlein's name somewhere and started actually with The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, uh, Red Stranger in a Strange Land, and then said, I want to read everything and just got Starship Troopers. And I was actually probably a third of the way through this book before I realized it had anything to do with that movie I had seen. So uh, sort of a different maybe approach to, to uh, understanding the book, uh, because I was definitely not reading it as a, like a novelization of the movie, which I think is largely how, how people in the uh, you know late 90s and, and early 2000s did encounter this book. But I have, I have real fun memories of reading this book for the first time, actually almost entirely uh, just sitting outside at a, a park near the apartment that I, I lived in when I was in the army, which I was doing because, you know, the, the jobs that we did in the military were all these these crazy hours. And, you know, I lived in a home with, with several other soldiers. So someone was always sleeping in the house. And it just seemed like if the weather was nice, uh, it was a good idea to just, you know, go out of the house. Uh, but again, as I said, I didn't have any money to do anything. So I would sit in a park and read a book. And I have fond memories of that time. It seems stressful at the time, actually being in the military. But uh, yeah, now these days, that seems like an ideal situation, which is a theme, which, which is a theme we are going to return to. Yeah, be, being in the military is very strange because it's very stressful when you're in it. I mean, I'm sure we both aged five years 
additionally <laughs> to like the real time aging that we did while we were growing in the military. But uh, one thing I've always kept with me about being poor is that um, libraries and parks are places where you can kind of be poor for free. And uh, that that's just a lesson I've, I've carried with me into maybe my slightly more affluent days. Yeah, it is a really good lesson. I mean, right? Libraries and parks, it's, it's, it's a real ideal there. I definitely recommend it. Well, let's get into some particulars about this book. Let's just start, you know, for people who maybe actually aren't all that familiar with this story or haven't uh, thought about it in a long time. Let's, uh, uh, let's do some talking about the, the basic premise of the book, uh, its structure, and, and also the plot. And maybe actually, let's just start, as I'm, I'm interested in the fact that you and I have different editions of the book. So maybe let's just start by reading to each other and also to listeners the synopsis that is on each of our edition. So Brandon, I'll let you go first. What's sort of the, the cover synopsis, uh, the cover blurb, right, to get you to buy this book in the store? Well, this is the ACE science fiction paperback edition. Uh, it has Robert Heinlein's signature on it and like a silver border and then a picture of a space marine. And here, I want to I want to point this out. That's what's on the front cover uh, is it's billed if you're just seeing it in a bookstore as the controversial classic of military adventure exclamation point. Um, but <laughs> the back just says this join the army and see the universe in one of Robert Heinlein's most controversial bestsellers, a recruit of the future goes through the toughest boot camp in the universe and into battle with the Terran mobile infantry against mankind's most alarming enemy. All right. So uh, interestingly, yeah, you've got, so you've got the ACE mass market edition from 1987. I have the ACE trade paperback edition from July, 2006. Uh, and they just recycled a lot of that material. So I also have the controversial classic of military adventure on the cover, but without the exclamation point. And I think that's actually super important. <laughs> <laughs> And then I actually have as well, because mine's a trade paperback edition, so I've got more space for more blurbs, I guess. There's actually a bit of of text that's excerpted here as well, and I'll just I'll just read that into the microphone here too. The historians can't seem to settle whether to call this one the third space war or the fourth, or whether the first interstellar war fits it better. We just call it the bug war. Everything up to then and still later were incidents, patrols, or police actions. However, you are just as dead if you buy the farm in an incident as you are if you buy it in a declared war. And, uh, you know, I think that's actually a pretty good hook to get people to buy the book that we can talk uh, eventually about uh, how representative any of this we think really is. But before we get into doing any of that, let's uh, let's flesh out a little bit of what's actually going on here. Right. So this is imagining Earth in the, the future, probably a few centuries in the future is is my guess. And it is about in encountering another alien species, an intelligent alien species, spacefaring species, and fighting a war against them. These are the bugs, or, or more properly, the arachnids, though also presumably they actually have a name for themselves that we, we never learn here. And it is the, the first person memoir of uh, a, a low-ranking soldier in what's called the, the mobile infantry, uh, though I think today we might refer to this as being in the space marines. That's become kind of the parlance here, or really just he's kind of a, you know, a sci-fi paratrooper might be a way to think about it. But it's this first-person memoir about joining the army and then going to war in space. Right. I think space marine is the real key phrase. Uh Paratrooper, maybe, but really Space Marine, like the Navy is and Air Force seem to have combined in some way. And these are soldiers on Navy ships, which, hey, that's the Marines. So 
a lot of the attitude of Johnny Rico also reminds me a lot of Marines that I know. Um, the, the, they have this kind of real intense uh, fidelity to the service and how awesome the Marines are that I didn't encounter as much even in infantry soldiers in the army. So yeah, this, this kind of whole attitude of Johnny Rico is really Marine like. Well, I definitely encountered this attitude among airborne troops, right? The 82nd airborne, for example, like if you've got, if you've got that beret, if you've got that red beret on in the, in the army, right, you've got this type of attitude about it as, as well, for sure. And so it read that way to me. Uh, and I guess really the image of being a paratrooper, I think comes through in just the, the way that the members of the mobile infantry get from their spaceship down to the planet where they are going to be doing uh, combat. And it is to basically jump out of the spaceship, right? They, they aren't going down in, uh, in boats or some kind of, you know, some kind of landing craft or something like that, the way that a Marine would get from a naval ship onto a beach. They're basically jumping out of an airplane. They go in these tubes and then are shot out of the ship and essentially fall down to the, the planet and they're uh, in their suits, their, their mechanized uh, combat suits that they wear. That's right. Yeah, I will say my my exposure to paratroopers and the infantry in the army was limited to a few people uh, that I knew in sergeant school, which is only a month long. And they were all pretty tired of being on the bounce because <laughs> we'd been fighting a forever war that nobody understood anymore. Right. Well, that I think maybe brings us right into where we should actually start here. It's not sort of in the middle, although this book starts in the middle. We'll talk about narrative technique later. But let's uh, let's just go through the narrator, Johnny Rico. Let's go through his career here in the military and start with basic training, which is a huge part of this book. And I actually think that the basic training narrative is really the reason that it ends up on that army Rating list, and the the reason that uh, it really may be the way that we all talked about it when we were talking about this book together in the military was not so much focused on the war experience, but actually on the basic training experience. It is a great basic training novel. I mean, there are really, as far as I'm concerned, like only two genuinely great, uh, like basic training mass media things out there. Uh, one is obviously Full Metal Jacket, the right. first half of that movie. And then the other one is the basic training scenes in in this novel. Uh, basically, I mean, Heinlein is really good at capturing what, you know, we'd call esprit de corps, which is the pride of being part of a good unit. And that even extends to training units. And it's very important for basic training to be successful, for the indoctrination to work, for the experience to be formative, for you to have uh, very high esprit de corps and morale. Because one of the ways they punish you in basic training is by trying to dampen your morale if it gets too high, though secretly they're encouraging it, you know, if you're too get too big for your britches. So that that's, you know, what this section of the novel really captures well, I think, is that sense of esprit de corps, the exhaustion that comes with basic training, and the feeling like your life is changing without you really being in control of it, and wondering if you're ever, if you're ever going to get back to your old life, uh, slowly realizing you won't, but then, then embracing the fact that, hey, the military is going to be your mother and father now. Uh, and I think Heinlein captures that all very well. And basic training becomes a real world 
uh, all, all on its own. That actually, when you leave basic training and go to your next level of training, it feels really weird. Like you, you, you actually leave basic training just at the moment where you feel like I have figured out how to exist in this world, this world of basic training, and then you're taken from it and have to go master something else. And I actually found myself being homesick for basic training when I was at AIT in Fort Huachuca, even though I got to go see movies like Starship Troopers, I got kind of homesick for basic training. Yeah. Lots of transitions in the first year of being in the military. I want to just talk about a few things that happened here in this basic training, about what it was like. The The head drill sergeant running Johnny Rico's basic training experience is uh, Sergeant Zim, which is just a fantastic name. And that is Clancy Brown in the in the film, who's uh, just one of my favorite kind of bit actors who shows up in so much science fiction stuff, although also plays LBJ in The Crown, which I highly recommend. He was awesome <laughs> in that role. And also it was very cool just to be like, that's Sergeant Zim. He's now the president of the United States. That's great. But he's really... He really becomes, for Johnny Rico, kind of a, a, a surrogate father figure here in basic training. And I had something like that, too, in basic. For me, it was Sergeant Hill. It was really someone who uh, took me aside, gave me special training, special instruction, paid attention to me, right? It seemed like he was really trying to help me become a good soldier. And I really appreciated that, really admired that. He became someone I wanted to emulate in the way that that Johnny Rico wants to emulate Zim. Did you have something like that in basic training? Uh, not really. I really thought our platoon sergeants were great. So I, I went to basic training during a time, I think I've brought this up on other episodes of the podcast, where reserve drill sergeants were coming through. Um, they were doing their two weeks and then heading out. So we had three reserve drill sergeants uh, during my basic training and then two core ones for our platoon. Um, but I didn't have any of these like mentor, you know, father replacement type figures really in the military at all. I think that has to do with like, I don't know, a problem I have with authority maybe, and maybe some authorities <laughs> recognize that uh, to both of our detriments or benefits, depending on the situation. Um, I really loved our reserve drill sergeants and our two main ones were awesome as well. I would not have wanted to be in any of the other platoons uh, in, in my basic training company. And I'm fairly certain everybody in the other platoons felt the same way about their platoon as well. Yeah, that's funny because that is definitely my memory of basic training as well was that I was in, you know, I was in the second platoon of our company, the Panthers, and I felt like I was in the best place and assumed that everyone else was envious of us. I wonder if that's just everyone's <laughs> experience, which that's, that's great. I mean, that's probably how it should be because that goes back to what you were talking about earlier, Brandon, this, this esprit de corps, right? And that is one of the things that basic training is for. Maybe it's, it's principally what basic training is for is to get you to start functioning coherently, uh, cohesively, I mean, as a, as a, as a group, uh, you're not actually very good at it by the end of basic training. You think you are, you're really not, but at least there's some building blocks there. And that's, that's really what they're trying to get at. So there are, there are some real big differences though, between uh, space Marine or, or mobile infantry, basic training and our experiences. And one of them, or at least I'm guessing, Brandon, we didn't go to basic training at the same time that we did go to basic training at the same place, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. But uh, there is a lot more hand-to-hand -hand combat in this basic training than I remember there being. 
Yeah, we had one day of hand-to-hand basic training, of hand-to-hand combat training in, in basic training. And then one time a year, we did like a refresher in the army, though, you know, everybody's kind of like, I, I work on a computer in our unit, <laughs> so why do I need this? Um, but of course, that's addressed in in this novel as well. Did you ever at any point in basic training in any of the either the pugil sticks or any of the other like hand-to-hand combat training you did, did you ever fight any drill sergeants? Um, I think we were allowed to call them out. I did not. I had enough sort of uh, people that I was interested in wrestling with. Oh, yeah. I really loved the the pugil sticks day in basic training. I, you know, I think I, you know, sort of middling uh, level of success that day. But I remember it being really fun. And for a long time afterwards, it was kind of my fantasy that that would be like a professional sport that I could train for and become American you know, like gladiators. <laughs> You could have been an American gladiator. I mean, that's, I think what I, I still have that dream. That's still my dream. But I, you know, the reason I ask this question about the fighting, the drill sergeants, that was not really my experience either. I think one person, I think maybe the drill sergeant kind of started by picking on a particularly large dude, uh, in, in our unit to handily defeat with the pugil sticks just to start things off. But otherwise there was not much of that, but that is something that's happening all the time in Johnny Rico's basic training unit is that Zim is just fighting people. He's just like saying, hey, come here, let's have a fight. And just in hand-to-hand combat, just destroying people as if like that's what basic training was. It's actually just like a fight club with, you know, with Sergeant Zim. Well, well, we should say, we probably should have made this clear earlier, right? Heinlein was in the the military. He was in the U.S. Navy uh, in the interwar period. So during a, during a bit of peacetime anyway. Uh, but I, it does make me wonder if this is what his naval basic training was, was like. It's just a lot of hand-to-hand combat with your, <laughs> with your instructors. I think he's also writing to like 15-year-old boys. You know, this, this novel is a bit of propaganda for the military. And that's what would excite any boy about, I think, being in the military is the, abil- the, the real ability to learn how to fight well and, and kind of fighting your father. You mentioned Sergeant Zim is this kind of father figure. I'm going to talk about that a little later on in our discussion. But it, it, what Heinlein is really leaning into is kind of the the overcoming of the the good father in some way or the replacing the good father. Um, and and that that's a big part of this novel. And Zim is 100% that role for Johnny Rico. So these fights are kind of set in that hero's journey arc, that fantasy of overcoming your father. Right. I mean, the this story could actually be titled, right, Starship Troopers or My Two Dads and How They Both Became My Subordinates. <laughs> that's, that's not a good title. That was the manuscript title. And then he, he, he rightfully changed it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not, not a good one. <laughs> All right. There's one more thing about Johnny Rico's basic training experience I want to talk about before we, we talk about the war itself. And, and that is that they are at uh, an installation called Camp Curry. That's actually something that it lends itself to seeing this as the Marine Corps, where uh, installations are called camps rather than uh, posts, as they are in the Army. But the big thing is that camp is meant a lot more literally uh, in this world than it is in in our world in the you know the the late twentieth or early twenty first century when we were in the in the military, uh, because there are almost no permanent buildings. At this installation, they're really much more open to the environment than 
our experience was, where we were on these really built-up uh, installation. Fort Leonard Wood was, uh, was a fairly old army post. Uh, the buildings, most of the buildings we were using were from the Second World War and, and, and definitely felt like it. They were not good places that you would actually want to, to live, but they were real shelters. And that's not something that Johnny Rico and, and his comrades have here in basic training that I thought was really interesting as a kind of you know, fantasy, a sort of speculative fiction basic training. I think fantasy is the operative word there. I mean, it certainly is appealing to kind of the, what are you made of? Can you do anything? Can you learn to be a man sort of fantasy that this novel is ultimately about, uh, you know, what makes a good man? So I, I think the idea of like camping for a couple months and just being out in the elements and testing your metal every day is uh, part of the fantasy of this novel. And uh, it works well. I'm eternally grateful for showers and uh, hard shelter that we had in basic training. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the same. And and I think actually that is one of the big changes or, you know, many, many huge changes actually in the adaptation of this book into the, the Paul Verhoeven film. But this, this sort of campness, the sense actually that really the whole basic training, which is quite a long basic training, much longer than ours was, uh, but this whole basic training was basically one long bivouac, one long field training exercise. That does not really translate uh, into the film's depiction of basic training at all, I don't think. No, it doesn't. And I think it's good that it doesn't because they had to make choices to really just drive the narrative and filming everything outside in camps and stuff. Um, most of the basic training f scenes in the movie are training scenes, not barrack scenes. So they didn't really have to do a lot anyway to adapt that, but they did need to demonstrate the camaraderie of the unit in a way that follows throughout the movie. Um, and the best way to do that was to kind of have these group barracks scenes. It's also just a lot easier to film that on a soundstage than it is to film outside <laughs> in like the Canadian Rockies where this, this uh, uh, basic training camp, Camp Curry is supposed to be uh, supposed to be located. It's hard to imagine directing uh, like Casper Van Dien in the, in the woods, you know, or something <laughs> like that. You know, I don't know if he can w walk and chew gum at the same time. I love Casper Van Dien, but he does have a, a certain kind of reputation as an actor. <laughs> yes, he does indeed. Well, let's uh, let's talk about the actual war here. I'll just give a little synopsis of this bug war. We've really got uh, the military combat narrative of this story is really just about two engagements. There's one at the beginning, the first chapter. Uh, against uh, a, an alien species who are not the bugs, but are are called uh, again euphemistically uh, by our narrator the skinnies. And then there's a, a really massive uh, engagement at, at the end, a kind of assault on uh, the planet Clendathu. But in between those two engagements that the Johnny Rico narrates for us, there's been a devastating assault on a, a bug world with really just extremely heavy casualties taken by the humans. And it actually seems like the war is going to uh, not go the humans way here. It seems like the humans start to lose that war. And that's a really nice way to sort of propel the, the plot forward there to you know raise the stakes, I guess is what I mean. But the, the bugs have actually also brought the war to Earth. They destroy Buenos Aires. They destroy San Francisco. They have also occupied uh, at least two human planets outside of the solar system. They've destroyed some other military installations in the solar system as well. So it does feel like this is a, a massive, all-out, total war where 
Earth itself is not safe. And I think Heinlein does a really good job of, of selling that. But the book ends with the war still going on, but with the sense now that the humans are going to win this war. There's a quest element to this novel that you didn't quite allude to, but maybe set me up to talk about here briefly, which is the war is not going well, but there's a MacGuffin that the heroes can get that will turn the war around. And uh, that is kind of the adventure portion of this novel really uh, centers around the getting of the artifact. It's actually, it's a brain bug, but I mean, it's just, it's this, it's a quest uh, narrative. And, you know, that that's really what Heinlein does very well in this book is thread and intertwine, you know, what the war is about, what the personal stakes are, and then what the global stakes are uh, for the war. My understanding is that the skinnies are in alliance with the bugs on some level, that they're not necessarily two separate wars, but there have been a lot of skirmishes going on for quite a long time. But once Buenos Aires is attacked, really what the reality is, is that it's impossible to keep the war a secret from civilians anymore. And then that's what kind of brings everyone together and surges this new uh, newfound effort to go to total war against the bugs and the skinnies. Yeah, we should be real clear, right? This is a book from 1959, you know, written perhaps in 1959, but more likely 57 or 58 before it, it got published, you know, going through revisions and so on, that what's happening here is a Cold War metaphor, early stage of the Cold War, not the sort of classic 1980s Cold War that I think you and I think of when we think of the Cold War, but this early stage of the Cold War before the, the Vietnam War is really going. But that's the, the metaphor that we have here in terms of the, the geopolitics. We've got these two big superpowers, humans and the bugs. And then we've also got all of these allies, and that is who the skinnies are. And so there's maybe some proxy wars, right? I guess attacking the skinnies, you know, as a proxy for the bugs. Though the impetus for sending the mobile infantry down to the skinnies planet is to convince them to leave the, the bugs, leave the arachnids, and join an alliance with the, the humans. And it's really meant to be kind of a display of might of, hey, look, we're pretty awesome. We've got, you know, mobile infantry who jump out of spaceships and uh, have flamethrowers and stuff. So definitely you want to join our side because you can see very clearly that in the long run, we're going to win this war and you want to be on the winning side. But there's, yeah, there's a real Cold Warness to that. Yeah, something that really stuck out to me in this novel and reading it this time uh, is, you know, with regards to the Cold War, is not just the references to the bugs as like a hive or a commune that's all over the novel of, you know, people who have submitted themselves wholly to an ideology. And so they lose their individualism. Um, but it's sort of the denigration in the way that the humans thinks think that the bugs fighting force are ultimately expendable. That is to say that the bugs treat their fighting forces expendable without need to honor their warriors. And the bug warrior cast are just fodder because they're easily replaceable and their identity is caught up wholly as a member of a group, not even a member of a group, but just as a, uh, an arm of the group. Uh, I guess that's a member, <laughs> but, but the bugs don't think of their fighting forces like a fraternity as the mobile infantry does. So the mobile infantry has this like pride and in individuality and the choice of carrying out orders rather than being easily replaced by another person if you can't 
uh, follow orders the way the bugs can. So the bugs are like thought of as basically brainwashed and replaceable and expendable. Well, the humans seem to be fighting for something like individual rights. So their deaths are noble because they die as an individual in service to something greater than themselves. The humans do. And it's their choice. And somehow this makes them better and makes their death more meaningful because of this choice and this individuality. But the casualties are enormous on both sides. So the difference might just be purely semantic and it might just be purely in the point of view of Johnny. If you zoom out and look at it from, I don't know, we can't say from Mars anymore because this is a, an interstellar novel, <laughs> but if you're far enough away, you, I don't think you'd see the real difference between the human soldiers and the bugs. This difference between collectivism and individualism is, well, it certainly is all over this book, right? That the, the bugs are definitely stand-ins for communists here. This book is very much about how how much Robert Heinlein hates communism. We're going to talk about that in more detail in the next episode. But definitely the bugs here are stand-ins for the communists. And even this, this, this difference in the way that low-ranking soldiers are regarded by leadership or by their, their civil society is is actually a strategic and, and plot point uh, in the book in that humans are not going to have a negotiated peace. This is a total war that can only end in defeat or victory because the humans are never going to abandon prisoners of war. And there are tens of thousands of humans who've been taken prisoner and we want them back. We want to liberate them or we're going to die trying. It's a, a really held up as a virtue here in this book. And the fact that the bugs don't have that is a lack of virtue, is you know, display of a lack of their virtue. And that is all about communism. I don't know, Brandon, you mentioned the, the field manual earlier and also, you know, have invoked that all of our drill sergeants were still basically trying to teach us how to fight in Vietnam, even though they themselves had never fought in Vietnam and that that was 40 years ago. Uh, still, that was sort of where the army was when we were in basic training. But definitely I was taught about Soviet doctrine. Like that was the thing that we were learning about. And we were told repeatedly that the Soviet military has no regard for the individual lives of soldiers or about uh, the or about conserving uh, ammunition. And so that we were learning how to, we were being taught how to deal with, with that as a, as a sort of battlefield tactic. I don't know that that was really true. I'm not sure that the army training really understood Soviet attitudes about like the sanctity of life and so on. But that was certainly the sort of propaganda that we were given in basic training about the Soviet Union uh, that didn't even exist anymore. Yeah, I mean that that came through way more for me in um, in uh, the professional training that I did after basic training, the job training, where all the fake wars we fought were against some kind of Russian stand-in country, and so that we learned about Russian doctrine or Soviet doctrine that way. Um, but it was all kind of game playing in in the sense that Heinlein talks about in this book. Before we move on, I, I do want to actually talk about the the tactics that the the mobile infantry are using here, or maybe more broadly, we should just say the tactics that the the humans are using in this war, at least as we see them through Johnny Rico's eyes, and in particular this opening chapter that that is this this planet, the the Skinnies. 
what we're shown here is a total war where civilians and, and also just civil life are fair military targets. I mean, we're definitely shown that that's true for the bugs who just destroy whole cities on Earth. But we see the humans acting this way as well, right? The tactic of this opening battle is to terrorize people until they surrender, to run around one of their cities with nuclear weapons and just like small nuclear bombs, uh, grenades of some sort, flamethrowers, and to just tear the place up. It's a type of terrorism, really, is how this felt to me. And I was profoundly uncomfortable with the ethics and the morality of this when when I, you know, the first 10 pages of this reading of the book. It's uh, it's narrated like a football game with weapons and lots of improvisation. <laughs> and, you know, one thing the movie does to emphasize this is literally to have Johnny Rico be a football player and spend some time with him as a really good quarterback to kind of set up his character arc. Uh, and, and, and they do that because this opening ch- chapter is narrated from the point of view of Johnny Rico, who's just running plays under the order of a team captain who's an officer. Um, yeah, but the goal is really to terrorize. I know that that our doctrine prior to invading a, com- a country or occupying it is to knock out infrastructure first, which does have a lot of collateral damage and, and can cause the military. The Well, the theory is that the opposing military will uh, crumble and come to our side. But we have a second side to that, which is to win hearts and minds. So there's kind of like there's there's two explicit parts of that doctrine in our tactics as a, a war fighting nation. The winning of hearts and minds does not seem to be high on the list of things to do uh, in this armies and Heinlein's armies uh, playbook. No, and and even the the opening moves of a, of a, an invasion that you're talking about there, and of course we've, you know, in some capacity participated in in several instances of that because, well, in our lifetimes we've been a nation at war in a lot of places uh, for the entirety of our of our lifetimes, uh, but the the opening moves there to knock out infrastructure and so on is really actually about knocking out the infrastructure. It's about blowing up command centers so that orders can't be sent out. It's about blowing up roads, uh, in particular about blowing up airstrips so that planes can't take off. You blow up the roads and the bridges so that troops can't move around. You're actually really attempting to destroy the enemy military's ability to actually wage war, to actually do anything. Their ability to move, their ability to communicate, their ability to, to shoot. It is not about terrorizing anybody and in fact minimizing the amount of what we call collateral damage by which we mean civilians who die uh, during our attacks right we're uh, minimizing that minimizing how much of that there is is a priority that we have and so we we'll almost always undertake these actions at night with the fewest people in like these command headquarter buildings uh, we often give warning that we're going to do this because it is not actually about killing people and it is certainly not about terrorizing people it is simply about preventing planes from taking off from uh, preventing communication signals from being sent and so on it's about the equipment and about the physical infrastructure not 
not killing people and certainly not terrorizing people. But here, this is just about terrorizing people. It's very clear that that's what's going on. Uh, Johnny Rico has not been sent down to this planet to put holes in a runway so that planes can't take off or, you know, a spaceport so that ships can't take off or anything like that. It is to terrify people, though they are. We should be we should be clear. They are also told not to to kill people if they can avoid it, because they are actually hoping to bring the skinnies over into their onto their side. But they're just blowing up like temples, churches. The, the issue that I have with uh, what you're saying right now is that from from our perspective, that's right. From the novel's perspective, from Heinlein's perspective, using the word people is just missing the point of what Heinlein, Heinlein has actually <laughs> done here, which is to totally dehumanize the enemy, you know, to, to depersonalize them, to not even, not even make them human. So like, okay, they're sentient, they're not human, fine, we might encounter that. But to say that anything that's non-human is inherently disposable, and it's that that's kind of like... It's an evil philosophy. So I appreciate you bringing like the lack of ethics to this conversation, (laughs) but I'm quibbling with your use of the word people here for the presentation of the novel, because yes, it is evil. They are terrorizing them, but Heinlein's perspective, but, but as we're looking at Heinlein's perspective, there's no sense that there's a problem with this because they're not people. They're not us. And that's kind of the real darkness that under, that is the undercurrent of this book, uh, the real dehumanization of the enemy. This is not Ender's Game. This is not a book that ends like the end of Ender's Game with any remorse. This is, we're going to keep believing that these bugs and skinnies, they're not people. So anything we do and any footholds we gain are right because we're people. And it's a a very dark mindset to have, I think, uh, for I don't know, any kind of discovery of a sentient species. I'm so glad you you brought up Ender's Game, which is 100% a response to this book. And and maybe in particular, the sequel, Speaker for the Dead, is is a, a response to this book of trying to, to take Heinlein on to say, yeah, these actually are people. And here's a book about it. Uh, Speaker for the Dead is a book that matters so much to me. That is a book, Ender's Game, Speaker for the Dead. Those are books that I read in my youth before I joined the army. And so they were always in the background of my experience of both the military. In fact, that's how I wound up in the military. It's because I thought it would be like Ender's Game and Ender's Game seemed really fun. And and it also really, I think, <laughs> colored my expectations of the sort of morality of soldiering and what we're what we're meant to do. But but I mean, I'm really glad, Brandon, that you're pointing out that hey, there is a ton of othering that Heinlein is doing here. It is so much in this book, not just uh, in terms of how the arachnids are portrayed or the skinnies here. I mean, just calling people bugs and skinnies is, uh, you know, calling other species bugs and skinnies is obviously itself just inherently a way of othering them, of highlighting the ways in which they are different from us. And then therefore the reason that it is okay to uh, terrorize them, to, to actually not follow any kind of like rules of engagement, to, well, to not follow the Geneva Conventions, essentially. So, that brings me to another question that I have for you about this, Brandon, about the bug war. What actually caused the war, do you think? So I, I thought about this. I couldn't find the passages. I was kind of skimming through the history and moral philosophy sections of the book, uh, the exact one to quote. But there is a passage in this novel uh, about the 
instinct for survival and protection of in-groups and the resources that belong to the in-group. And that is a mindset that is deeply embedded in the human community in this novel. And it seems to me as though the bugs are viewed as people who expand ceaselessly because of their nature and so are a threat to the in-group of humanity and the resources that humanity is trying to protect. Uh, and the bugs expand because they can just breed huge broods of new selves. And so to stop the bug expansion, which would go on forever, is crucial to the survival of humanity and the protection of humanity's uh, resources. Right. Well, Heinlein also says that humanity is expanding constantly, right? That this is what humanity is doing is, you know, colonizing the solar system and then also other star systems. And there is this great single state, you know, interstellar human civilization that is continuing to expand and wants to expand. And Heinlein sets this up. This is where we can go back to thinking about the Cold War metaphor, where the galaxy is simply not big enough for arachnids and humans, both of which want to expand to fill up as much of it as possible, to fill up all of it. And this war is going to determine whether the galaxy is a bug galaxy or a human galaxy. And, you know, that's obviously the Soviet Union and the United States as well, this idea that the two simply cannot coexist in the galaxy. And that's really all we need to know, right? We don't get any specific incidents, uh, some kind of you know, misunderstanding somewhere or, uh, you know, diplomatic failure anything like that that tells us what is the inciting incident of this war, because that doesn't matter for Heinlein. For Heinlein, it is inevitable that the arachnids and humans are going to fight because both are expansionist, and it is in the nature of expanding civilizations to fight each other for domination, to fight each other for for room to live. And that is uh, that's a worldview that I do not share with Heinlein, for sure. No, it's it's really difficult to read this novel and think deeply about what Heinlein is suggesting and feel or get the sense that Heinlein doesn't quite know what to do with the fact that he's drawing a lot of equivalencies between the bugs and the humans, <laughs> but the humans are inherently good. Uh, it's, it's a point of cognitive dissonance in the novel for sure. Yeah, there's one area in particular that I, I where I want to talk about that when we do the the second episode when we're we're really looking at what's going on in the uh, the history and moral philosophy class. Really, when we look at this book as uh, a political science fiction novel rather than a military science fiction novel, and we are actually coming to the end of the the, the treatment of this as a, a bit of military science fiction here. There's there's one more thing about the way the military is presented in this book that I want to talk about, and really it's just to say that that Heinlein is envisioning making some improvements. Uh, on what he experienced in the uh, American Navy and the American military. I want to go through some of these and, and just, uh, you know, we can talk about whether or not we, we think these are a good idea, uh, how they maybe map onto our experience as well. The first thing I want to talk about here is the fact that all officers in this military are former enlisted, which is definitely not how our military or I think any military on earth works. What do you think of that idea, Brandon? Well, let me just start within the context of the novel. This kind of goes along with a, a doctrine of everybody fights in the mobile infantry. And my sense of what Heinlein is trying to correct for here is a need to ensure that the officers 
coming into a unit actually know how the military works from the ground up (laughs) instead of only understanding it from the top down, you know, and, but knowing how the military works from the ground up can lead to problems as well as we see in, in with Rico in his role as a third Lieutenant, you know, he still wants to hang out with the enlisted boys, but that's not an officer's job, but it's kind of about this, this fatherly bond that the officers are supposed to form with the enlisted that it's like explicit in this novel or they should aim to form this kind of bond and that's the job of a leader and they can only do that if they've been through combat they know what it takes to go through a, a combat scenario um and this is, you know, maybe a point where I'll just talk briefly about some of the father stuff in the story. But basically, Johnny's arc of becoming a f- an officer has a lot to do with the hero's journey of overcoming the father and, you know, being vindicated for the rejection of the dark father, being prepared to step in the shoes of the good father. And, you know, this is why it's so important that Johnny technically be in charge of Zim in the, in the denouement of the novel. So that's from the... Heinlein's writing perspective, the character arcs perspective of why officers are former enlisted. From a a doctrinal perspective, though, I think it's very likely that if if Heinlein was on a ship or he was, uh, you know, at sea for a while or something like that, that he was dealing with incompetent officers and maybe getting punished for it, especially on like a naval ship for like officers who don't have enough to do. So they're really like they get on your case about having a spot on the floor where you were supposed to clean after somebody dropped coffee there after you cleaned it, you know, things like that that happen all the time in the military. Um, I mean, I worked with a staff sergeant in E six in the army who went to OCS and came back and he was way worse off for it than if he had probably just been an officer <laughs> in the first place. He had this massive chip on his shoulder, made everybody call him, sir was handing out push-ups like it was his job and we just wanted to see our old staff sergeant and he just came back with this chip on his shoulder i don't even know why he came back to visit his old unit but you know that's the downside of officers being former enlisted and then returning to their old units is you, you really shouldn't do that because everybody has a different relationship with the person and not the rank. Um, and, and Heinlein doesn't really seem to engage with that or encounter that as part of the novel because everybody's a rank first and a person second. And that that's just not how camaraderie and, and fraternity really form uh, in the military, in my experience. And that is the the arc of Johnny Rico in this book, right? Is that he starts off as uh, an enlisted, starts off as a private, right? The lowest rank that you can have. And then ends with him going back to his old unit where he was a, a private and a corporal and then a, a sergeant very briefly as the platoon leader, as the, the the lieutenant in charge of the platoon, which is, you know, a great arc uh, for this this fictional character. I, I think also we should probably be clear, hey, we were enlisted in the in the army. We did not say that at any point to think that, you know, anyone with military experience would have already inferred that, but we should be clear that we were enlisted, not officers. Uh, Heinlein, though, was an officer. He actually was an officer in the Navy, not enlisted, um, though, you know, still probably got yelled at about, about coffee stains on the deck from time to time because uh, everything always <laughs> rolls downhill and he was never, never very high ranking. We should, maybe we should talk a little bit too, even about sort of for people who were not in the military, what really even is the difference between an enlisted and, and an officer, an enlisted soldier and an officer? 
Well, the real difference, as far as I can tell, is that uh, the enlisted work for a living and the officers don't. <laughs> that's the that's kind of classic <laughs> distinction between them. <laughs> right. That's the first thing you learn when you get to basic training, because you think you're supposed to call everyone sir, because that's what you've seen in the movies. Uh, this movie, perhaps even. Right. Uh, and then you're told, don't call me, sir. I work for a living. Right. Is what drill sergeants say. That's the, the classic thing there. And that does, uh, you know, that certainly is a perspective that many enlisted people can can have is that enlisted of people are doing the work and uh, officers are in offices <laughs> doing desk work like they're just filling out spreadsheets and forms and stuff uh, seems to be a lot of what they are are doing and and in fact Heinlein has some things to to say about that that we'll get to in just a moment but the idea of this this bipartite system where there's uh, there's two different tracks there's the enlisted track and the officer track in the military is really from early modernity where what we now today would call enlisted soldiers uh, would have been people from lower classes of society people who could not read generally or read very well maybe do a lot of math uh, people who simply were not well-educated uh, and had no financial resources, uh, many of these people would have actually been conscripts or, or not volunteers of some sort, either conscripts by people who were actually drafted uh, or people who were sent to serve in the military as a kind of judicial punishment, right, for, for having broken uh, the, the law, having been convicted of a, of a crime. And then the officers were people from the wealthy elite class of their society, people who were literate, who were uh, financially well off, who were uh, connected also to like political leadership, whatever that might be. Maybe it's a, a, a royal court, maybe it's some kind of parliament or Congress or something like that. And so there was a real class divide here, right? That the officers are the upper class and the enlisted are the lower class. And what it meant was that you were entering military service with a different set of educational and experiential backgrounds. And that officers, being of this upper class, were deemed to be natural leaders uh, and certainly used to telling people what to do, whereas enlisted people are natural followers, right? These are people from a servant class, from a working class, people who are naturally used to following orders. And so that's why you have these two different groups. This really doesn't make a whole lot of sense anymore, like in America in the 21st century, when we're all fairly well educated because we've got compulsory public education until, uh, you know, well, through high school, right? We'll say we're all literate. We've all basically coming from the same experiences, that there's not a huge divide anymore. And in fact, a lot of people who think about the way that the military uh, is organized and structured have for decades now actually been advocating getting rid of this system and adopting a worker and uh, worker to management system that follows more of like a, a, a civilian model where, uh, you know, there's no company you work for that has this kind of like bipartite system like these totally different tracks, right? Managers in, in any kind of business are people who have done lower jobs and have been promoted or, you know, done them somewhere else and been brought in from outside, something like that, right? But a lot of uh, policy uh, thinkers are have been advocating for decades now that the American military needs to get rid of this antiquated model and adopt something like this. And it really is what Heinlein is looking at here as well. So this was something maybe even in the zeitgeist here in the 1950s, where Heinlein is really trying to show us that there are actually benefits 
to this, uh, even though, of course, he's showing us that, you know, Johnny Rico takes some time getting used to being a lieutenant, as I think any of us would. I will say my experience of enlisted people who went off and became officers in the military was a lot more positive than yours was, Brandon. My favorite and, and from my perspective, best uh, CO, commanding officer, company uh, commanding officer that I ever had was a, a former en- enlisted man. Well, I mean, yeah, I, that was one example of that uh, situation not working out that I gave. But another example I have is the man who was in charge of the operation that I worked for. And he was a former army enlisted who went the uh, switched services and went the Coast Guard officer route. And he was one of the he was he was somebody who I greatly admire. I mean, he was somebody I talked to about maybe following the same track that he went on. My, my dad was in the Coast Guard. Uh, so as I was thinking about transitioning out of the army, I thought, well, should I just get a bachelor's degree and um, do the officer route in the Coast Guard? But yeah, so yeah, it does work out in, in some cases. This guy was just a rough character to begin with. I mean, you always you come out you come out of any situation in part with what you brought into it. So, you know, him going to OCS did not change him in a significant way. One thing that we do have in our military is that officers are required to have a bachelor's degree at least. So that is kind of the the distinction. I think what Heinlein is asking is what kind of experience or education actually makes a good officer? Is it that they got a liberal arts degree or is it that they know a lot about the military? Right. Well, one of the things that we definitely lose because this is the model for how people become officers, right? So so the head officer, the sky marshal, right? The, the head officer of the entire human military was himself a private or, you know, a seaman or spaceman, I guess probably they would they would say in the Space <laughs> Navy here. We don't actually ever know about that. Uh, but that that person, the sky marshal would have been an enlisted so enlisted person at the lowest rank and, and pay grade at one point or another, then went to officer school and then, you know, had a career and then got to this this position. But what it definitely also means is that that person never went to college. And you're right, officers in the American military all went to college in some way or another. Most officers have actually gone to college in the way that we think of go to college or go to university uh, if you're uh, outside of the United States and have done some kind of reserve officer training program uh, during that time uh, where they are exploring the possibility of joining the military as an officer when they're done uh, for a little while and then making a formal commitment and having some other schooling paid for and then also spending their summers and some of weekends doing some of the training, becoming introduced to the military while they also are uh, pursuing their bachelor's degrees. But then we do also have the military academies. Uh, you know, each of the services has one. So like, you know, there's West Point and Annapolis are the, you know, the two, but then also there's the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs that confer uh, engineering bachelor degrees on people. But, you know, you go through the college experience with all of your distribution requirements or accredited institutions uh, in the United States. But that is something that the officers in Heinlein's new model army here don't have. They have not gone to college or gone to university. And I think that means they're missing something. Yeah, I think so too. It's kind of a broader engagement with the role that the military plays in the world. So it's not 
just only military is the most important thing, you can kind of get a sense of the larger system and the larger role that the, the military plays in uh, political science and political theory and logistics and all, and all of these sorts of things. I mean, right now we are living through a moment in time where military logistics thinking is informing and kind of directing how we are going to be healthy as a society. So it's, it's the larger picture, the kind of maybe reading a couple novels <laughs> in an English class or <laughs> that aren't about the military, just it's, it's a broader education. Though I think a lot of people end up with political science degrees or something like that as well. So the other big thing, and you, you alluded to this already, Brandon, but the other big thing here is that everyone, at least in the mobile infantry, it is not really clear to me that this is the entire army, but at least everyone in the mobile infantry, every person is a combatant. Every person is a fighter, right? There's no um, supporting role that is done by someone in uniform, right? So no sort of personnel administration, uh, no one doing the cooking, no one doing the the cleaning, at least like as a full-time type of job has uh, has a uniform on that. These are all civilians who uh, work for the military, but are not people who are in the military. Uh, and anyone filling out like your personnel paperwork, making sure that you've got healthcare and that uh, you're going to the, the right duty station next, all of that logistical stuff, right? That the supplies are getting to you. Uh, what's in the warehouse? Where's the ammunition? All of that is done by civilians rather than people in uniform, which is not the experience of our military. Most of those jobs, many of them are done by civilians, but most of those jobs are done by people in uniform, soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and so on. Do you think that that's a, a good idea? Or what do you think would change if, if that were the way that our military began to operate, that all of these other roles were done by civilians? So if you think about this in terms of like a Marine on a ship, uh, who was at sea to have a ton of civilians going around on that ship, I think would be a real issue. And then to also not prepare for the return of let's say an invading force returning to the ship to not have everything prepped for them for the return, the hospital, the kitchen, the barracks, like all that stuff that that's kind of like the warm bed, the hot meal, the shower after the fight. Um, to have that not really done or done by civilians, I think is, I, I don't know, it's an interesting choice. I mean, one thing we didn't quite mention is that chaplains are also fighting, which is like a Geneva Convention violation. Mm -hmm. um, our chaplains are not allowed to carry even guns. They have a chaplain's assistant who carries the weapon on behalf of the chaplain and then also does all the PowerPoint slides for Sunday services. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I... I Look on the on the posts that we were on and the bases that we were on. There were huge civilian uh, supplementary staff that worked in the administrative capacities, doing things like getting you your ID and things like that. Um, so that's already a part of it. But I don't know how this would work on like a on a warship because there's all sorts of classified stuff. Um, there's real danger. There's real threat to getting, you know, a ton of ships get blown up in this novel. 
that I just don't think works. The Marines, though, are all trained in infantry. They have an additional kind of course on top of the what the Army basic training is that teaches them all the infantry tactics and focuses on infantry. And that's kind of the ideal, I think, that Heinlein is looking at. Um, but it, it, it kind of doesn't make sense to me to have a chaplain, for instance, be uh, a fighting person in the mobile infantry. I mean, like, I, I would think that they would just be a different branch of service that does that. I mean, if they're a religious leader, why do they have to be mobile infantry and pick up a gun and fight? Um, it's, a, you know, the chaplain question here is, is a big, maybe a silly part of, of the novel <laughs> to have a chaplain getting into a huge arm, power armor suit, bless everybody, and then go and fight the war himself. I mean, what if he dies? Chaplains are a big part of morale in the military. When soldiers feel they can't go to their chain of command, they can talk to the chaplain. Did um, they fulfill a you know the religious ritual roles as well? They're often officers. Um, uh, Heinlein doesn't really go into that, but I think having in wartime a big civilian contingent doing paperwork, doing all the beans and bullets stuff, to me, that would be a huge operational security concern, uh, especially with how much Heinlein, how deeply Heinlein in, is invested in enfranchisement as a citizen. And so to have a civilian kind of do all this work without the reward of being a uh, uh, a service member seems like an easy OPSEC hole that could be plugged by just having the military do this. That's a really interesting perspective here, right? To think about the security risk that this poses, right? That, you know, maybe the, you know, that maybe the arachnids have an actual like intelligence, you know, operation on earth to get some of these civilians to, you know, tell them what they know about the troop movements and so on. I don't think Heinlein is envisioning that at all, like as a possibility, even not even a little bit here. But that's a real interesting, real interesting idea. That was not maybe the perspective that I had on this. But I, I do share your concern about civilians doing some of these jobs. Like this is things like where like, uh, presumably, civilians are manning things like um, whatever the equivalent of like a radar station would be or a comm station that's relaying orders to people because those are not fighting jobs, right? And if 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 everyone in uniform is doing a fighting job and anything that isn't a fighting job is being done by civilians, then those jobs are being done by civilians. But those are jobs where you are putting your life at risk. You are a military target at that point when you're operating military hardware. Uh, also, people like mechanics, like uh, this would be people who are you know repairing uh, equipment, re repairing tanks, repairing these mobile infantry suits that are you know damaged enough to be pulled uh, out of uh, out of use temporarily to be repaired before they go back. Right in our military, those are jobs that are mostly done by service members, people in uniform, people in the military. But Heinlein here is envisioning that those would be done by civilians. But those are jobs that especially in wartime, are going to be done in some kind of forward operating base that is going to be a military target. So the idea of having civilians, even, you know, government civilians, it's not necessarily uh, any sense that these are like private you know, contractors or something like that, though. I think we often make that assumption when we're reading this book, because that's the world we live in now. Everything is done by contractors rather than by actual government civilians. But I think in this case, we are talking about government civilians. But you're right, they're not people who are then going to get the benefit 
on the other end of having put their lives at risk like this. So that does seem structurally unfair. It does seem unsecure as well, right? These are people who might have grievances that could be exploited by enemy enemy spies, enemy intelligence operatives. It also just seems dismissive of work that is not being a paratrooper, essentially. Yeah, I mean, but everybody's got to do their part. <laughs> they're, right. They're doing their part. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to know more? <laughs> All right. We'll uh, we'll leave this aside. I think there is more to talk about here. And, and I would like to invite people to drop by our forum at claytemplemedia.com or, or, our, or our subreddit uh, on Reddit, which is just called Clay Temple Media, and talk with us about Heinlein's vision of a, a more efficient and better military than the one that he was in in the, uh, the 19, uh, 1920s and 1930s uh, in the U.S. Navy. Uh, we're going to switch to talk talking about, uh, about the craft, about the, the writing craft of this book. And I think there's a lot to talk about here. But before we leave behind uh, thinking about the military here, Brandon, I just want to ask you one question, which is, if you could right now put your life on pause and go to mobile infantry basic training for a few months, would you do it? Uh, I'm not that high speed and I never have been, uh, you know, when I, the, the rec- <laughs> recruiting station in, uh, in the town where I, where I joined up, um, had a, uh, Marine and army people sharing the same office. And, uh, t- I talked to the Marine guy a little bit and I was just like, that's not for me. I'll do the next most high speed <laughs> thing, which is the army. I think I can handle that. This is just too, it's, it asks too much of, it would be asking too much of me to give up so much of myself for this fighting force uh, that I couldn't do it. Would you? I absolutely would. Uh, you know, and I really mean on pause, right? So that the, the rest of the world would simply stop moving while I was there. So I could come back, you know, I could leave today and and be gone for months, but come back and it would actually just be tomorrow morning. So I wouldn't miss anything from my real life. That's the that's the scenario I'm envisioning here. But yeah, I would I would love to do this. I mean, for one, uh, I could use the exercise. And also it would be nice to get outside. I mean, we are still recording this in like pandemic restrictions. Uh, it would be nice to get outside. But, but one of the things that really struck me that that I had never noticed before is that Camp Curry is in the Canadian Rockies. Uh, seems to be on the Alberta side, but then they do also end up over on the, the British Columbia side. They actually end up in Vancouver and then down in Seattle uh, when they're on a little bit of, uh, of uh, a leave, like a sort of weekend pass from, from basic training. And uh, I would love to go live in the Canadian Rockies and get a lot of exercise, <laughs> really get in shape <laughs> and uh, and not have to worry about cooking any food. Like it's all just, you know, provided for yeah. me. Uh, by civilians, I guess. I could use that for a few months. It feels like that would be a nice vacation to me right now, right? Going through mobile infantry basic training would feel like a vacation to me. I, I would do the army again in a heartbeat. And I guess the army has been kind of rolled into the mobile infantry here. Um, but, I, you know, I would take, I would put him my life on pause and go do the army and whatever it threw at me once again. But this is just... Uh, yeah, that's not for me. It never has been. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like the idea of just being outside, just being in a tent, just really on this this like four month long uh, field training exercise. It, it sounds really great. And one of the things I really enjoyed uh, that they get to do in basic training here in mobile infantry basic training is they they just uh, individuals get dropped into the back country of the Canadian Rockies and have to like make their way back to camp uh, without any kind of provisions or equipment. They have to survive on the land. Um, I have gone to the Canadian Rockies, lived there for six weeks to do exactly this for fun. So 
you know, I would like to try this. It sounds sounds good to me. Yeah, I guess the superhero outfits would make everything a lot easier too. Well, I don't think they wear those in that exercise. I think that they are just, it's just them on their own. What the actual utility That's of right, that yeah. uh, is, is unclear. I mean, I guess it's really one of the big things, of course, that you and I got out of basic training as well, though these guys are getting it, you know, dialed up to 11, is the confidence that you can accomplish anything. You can put up with anything and you can accomplish anything, which is really important for, you know, when you're faced with real obstacles, uh, you know, in a combat situation, but just also in life in general. Yeah, I know. I, I do miss that feeling quite a bit. Uh, this real corporate world we live in is it's difficult to move through compared to the military. <laughs> compared well, to the military. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, well, let's move on to, to talking about the, the writing craft here. We're going to start by talking about the storytelling aspects, and then we'll we'll finish up by talking about the prose, right? The, the sentence level, the sort of wordsmithing of it all. Uh, we're going to start by talking about narrative techniques, and, and Brandon, you're going to walk us through that. Yeah, the first thing I really want to bring up here, and Glenn, I, I do have to say, I think you, you've stolen a small piece of my thunder by talking about the structure of this novel as kind of the, you know, adventure pieces, the basic training piece, the military history and moral philosophy, and then this kind of final battle at the end. But I, I kind of want to put that in, I kind of want to specify a little more of what's going on with that as I talk about the narrative techniques here. So the first thing I really want to bring up is, is that this novel in part, is essentially a very basic hero's journey. And that that's kind of what makes up the bones of the story. That's what draws us in. Um, there's the call to adventure, the dark night of the soul, the adventure itself, the gathering of allies. All of these things are present, though the novel does open in, in media res. Uh, but I've also briefly touched on the father stuff as well. You know, Glenn, we, we made a joke about the two fathers uh, <laughs> here. And, and that's a big part of the novel, too. But Heinle and takes these elements and really puts them in a blender. So he does drop us right in the middle of the action, as I said, and then he pulls us back from it and he starts with Rico in high school and then Rico's going through his training. Then there's a little more action. Then Johnny's back in school. And finally, we get our quest uh, section at the end of the novel. So, you know, you and I both read off the front cover of this ace paperback that this is the controversial classic of military adventure. But really, this novel sort of tricks you into thinking it's an adventure story, when what this novel is at its heart is a buildings roman. That's a, a novel about the formation of the main character. Often, this is done through uh, school stories. Um, and then it has some quest and adventure stuff thrown in. So Heinlein's real idea then is to kind of bury the fact that he's writing just a, a buildings roman by giving us some adventure stuff. And and then, then the, so the main technique of the novel, and this is, helps us explain why Heinlein has structured it the way that he has, is to cover up just the fact that this is a, a buildings roman. This is a novel about the formation and molding of Johnny Rico into taking the role of the wise king instead of the dark father, the tyrant, uh, the good father instead of the dark father. You know, and it, that also explains its enduring legacy as well. As a culture, we tend to love buildings romance 
and quests. Uh, J.K. Rowling actually like reversed this technique in creating Harry Potter. She gives us some hero and quest stories and uses the guise of the buildings Roman to tell those quest stories in, those adventure stories in. Um, but it turns out that the buildings Roman elements are light in the Harry Potter novels compared to this novel, Starship Troopers, where the quest and hero stuff is very light, but the buildings Roman stuff, the formation stuff is really important. Right. And what you mean by that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what I think that you mean by that uh, comparison to Harry Potter is that ultimately Harry Potter doesn't actually learn a whole lot at Hogwarts and doesn't really grow all that much. I mean, there certainly is growth and learning that happens, but that's not really what the story is about. It does not end with uh, this sense of who Harry Potter is going to go out and be in the world, the wizarding world or the, the Muggle world, whatever he decides to to do. And I, I know the book ends with, you know, a flash forward. And so we do know what he has done. Try not to spoil Harry Potter for anyone who, who doesn't, <laughs> doesn't know Harry Potter, but it, it's not that is not the focus, right? Even though it actually is provides the structure of the book, but the, the reverse is true here, right? That what we are seeing is a young person learning how to be an adult in the, the world. And I, I think that's a really great observation. Right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And you've, you've summarized what I've said very well. In Harry Potter, the buildings Roman elements are the, the spells and the Quidditch, like the games, but the spells are really meant to aid in the quest part of those novels and the adventure parts of those novels. Um, and then it, the buildings Roman, especially if they're school novels always have games in them, you know, the Ender's game. I think that uh, Orson Scott card picked up on this and made Ender's game far more of that kind of explicit buildings Roman with the game and, you know, the kind of stuff that uh, JK Rowling did where Heinlein was, really thinly veiling a like, this is what it means to be a good person. And these are really good ideas with what culminates in a genuinely great quest. I mean, the last chapter of this novel, not the tag chapter uh, 14, chapter 13 of this novel is an absolute masterpiece of a quest novel of a quest that uses all of the adventure elements that he's put into the novel to that point to give us a very tense and exciting quest at the end. And uh, it's, it's marvelous technique. But if you're picking up this book, if you've never uh, read it before, if you've only seen the movie, this is not an adventure novel. This is a formation novel. Yeah, I want to talk about the adaptation in, in, in a little bit. But before we do that, I, I want to actually take what you're saying one step further and, and say that really this is this book is political science fiction masquerading as military science fiction. That I, What I think this book is actually about is the political philosophy that Johnny Rico is exposed to in the two iterations of the class history and moral philosophy that he gets, the one in high school and the one in officer candidate school or officer training school. And... The way that Heinlein does that, right, is to give us a pause in something happening in Rico's military experience, whether it's it's basic training or something out uh, in in the war, and have him, you know, say something like or think something like, "This reminds me of this time when one of my teachers was talking about X," and then 
gives us 10 pages of the classroom scene. And so it is definitely doing that trick in reverse, right? As you're pointing out, right? Where the, the, the superstructure of this is the military narrative, but then what we really are getting, what we're seeing even the, the building's romance sense of this is so frequently in actually these classroom flashback scenes that we get, but it all flows so seamlessly. You don't notice that it's happening. If you're you're not really primed to pay attention to it, he just takes us back, you know, interrupts the sort of chronology, the narrative of the military career to give us these classroom flashbacks that I think, you know, contain the kernel of what the book actually is about with, you know, like what Heinlein is actually trying to do here. But you don't see the strings when you're reading it. Right. It is, it is masterfully done. I mean, it's basically Slumdog Millionaire, right? I mean, that's, that's, the, <laughs> that's how that movie is structured. It's like, this is how I know this answer, and this is how I know how to perform in this situation, right? Those are like the two elements of Slumdog Millionaire, uh, and it's basically what this book is leading up to. You're Johnny Rico learning how to become a lieutenant and how he learned how to be a good lieutenant, that's what the novel's about. It's not about the quest chapter where he gets the brain bug or the fight with the skinnies. It's about him in the classroom learning how to be the good father, the wise king. And it is meant to be instructive to young readers, right? Contemporaries in 1959 reading this book of, hey, here's an example of a, a good adult. This is aspirational. This is an aspirational model. And hey, here also is the story about how this person who started out actually as a fairly spoiled, uh, totally useless teenager became this person that we should all be aspiring to. And so the idea is this can be a blueprint for, you know, the 15 year olds uh, in 1959 who are reading this book. This is how you can turn yourself around or how you can turn out to be someone as awesome as Johnny Rico. And it doesn't require, you know, going off to space to, you know, fight the arachnids. Uh, it, what it requires actually is having the values and also having the political philosophy that I'm espousing in this book. <laughs> exactly. And when we get to our next uh, discussion, we're going to be talking about the way that uh, Heinlein on some level uses the hero's journey to make his political philosophy highly palatable. Yeah. So we've got more to do in this episode before we get there. But before we even get into the next section of the, the outline we've got in front of us, Brandon, I do want to talk a little bit about the adaptation. Because one of the big things that happens in adapting this from page to screen is that although there are some bits of history and moral philosophy in the movie, uh, Michael Ironside's super important there, very memorable <laughs> in the role of uh, Dubois, uh, but there's not very much of it. There is certainly far, far, far less of it than there is in the book, and it is not central, right? The Paul Verhoeven tugs on different threads here when he's wanting to translate this to film. And you think that he actually, you know, I know this because we've been talking about this off mic all week, also with uh, one of our uh, our other military comrades uh, over some uh, some email, uh, that you think that this is, you, th you think that the, the film does a better job of actually crafting a military adventure story. And I just wanted to prompt you to talk about that. I, I absolutely do. And it has to do with the, uh, you know, the conflated character choices. One, I think integrating the women into the military of the film is kind of a brilliant idea in terms of adding pathos to the story. So there is Carmen, um, who is in both the book and the film, but Johnny's not really interested in women or propagating 
the human race. He's interested in killing <laughs> bugs, right? So he's he's not super sympathetic in the novel in that way, unless you think like you can get the most fulfillment out of life from being part of a brotherhood and not knowing the love of a woman or a partner, a beloved in some sense. And, and Rico gets way too much fulfillment from killing and not from like companionship or love. So that to me, I think works better to really drive a sense of pathos to the movie to, you know, it is a case of fridging the woman in the film, but that trope works in shorthand in the movie. Other things the movie does really well is to kind of erase the, the father figure um, and make him weak or whatever. He doesn't join the army. Um, it's turning Zim into the private that catches the brain instead of like the platoon sergeant which I think is really smart because it, it it's the humbling of that adversarial father um, and giving him his own heroic arc that mimics Johnny's in some sense. But then the shoes that Johnny steps into and replaces are Radchak. So it, Michael Ironside is, is Michael Ironside in the film is Radchak. They, they conflate Dubois and Radchak, I think very right. smartly. So the ways that they, Combined characters uh, have Johnny overcome the fathers in different ways. Uh, the pathos they add to the story, all of that works so much better to streamline the narrative than the really episodic stuff we get in this novel. Um, and then when people die or buy the farm or make a real estate investment or however you want to say it, however the book says it, um, in the book, it's just that this person just didn't come back. And that's like part of life. But the movie shows that there's like actually a downside to creating uh, fraternal bonds with people and then having them die. And then to show the absurdity, the extent to which you're still rah-rah on war as if you're getting vengeance for the people who didn't make it back instead of you're just a functionary in some big bureaucrat's plan. So the movie does... I think engage with the moral philosophy of the novel by satirizing it. But from a purely narrative perspective, they really understand the hero's journey in a way that uh, creates more pathos. And so I think it works better as a streamlined narrative. Yeah. And I, I agree with your perspective there on that. I mean, I mean, what, the story that is told in the movie is a story that is here in the book, but only takes up about 20% of the pages of the book, maybe even less than that, maybe even more like 15%. And so in some senses, the film is even less of an adaptation and more of like a, a spinoff. It's almost just taking this book as a writing prompt and telling a different story with it that has you know some of the same scenes, but then builds an entirely different narrative around those scenes, right? That the movie really is this military story. This is a story of the bug war and the other stuff, uh, the stuff that we get from basic training and uh, the classroom is subservient to that, which totally flips the way that the book works, right? So they're doing two totally different things. They're telling very different stories and very different types of stories, I think. Right. And they bring the high school kids together to like, why have multiple characters in the intelligence bureau um, if you already have a friend who went into it? Why have somebody else pilot the starship and tutor Johnny Rico if you already have somebody who's doing that? So there's a real mind to the efficiency of characters as well in the movie. 
that streamlines the narrative. Now, I said that the movie is a, a, sat, a satirization or a parody of the history and moral philosophy stuff in the book. And that's true because the movie is a satire of war propaganda films that have the implied messages that are present in the history and moral philosophy classes. Yeah, I was maybe being a little too flippant when I, I presented this as having taken the book as a writing prompt because there's it's because it is really a very smart adaptation in the sense that it engages with the material while telling the same story but in a, in a different way than what Heinlein does. It's it is not so much a transformation of this book into a movie as it is actually an engagement with this book in a different medium, which is a very cool thing to do. It is cool, and it's not done often enough as far as I'm concerned. I, I really love the film. <laughs> I, I, I do, too. And I was tempted to say we should do a third episode here for this uh, on the film, but we just we just don't have time for that, though. Yeah, it's something we might be might be talked into doing in the future. Well, I'm going to talk very briefly here about the voice of Johnny Rico from the, the storytelling perspective, right? This is a book that is a first-person narrative. It is a, a memoir, and Johnny Rico feels like a real person who is telling me this story. And that is very difficult to, to pull off, right? That is a hard thing to do. Uh, most people who attempt to do that don't succeed. Uh, most books that are written in first person are often just not very good. They don't feel this authentic. This is a really strong, powerful voice that has characteristics, right? Johnny Rico is uh, someone with a worldview. He's got a real cynicism about individuals, but then a real lack of cynicism actually about the institutions of his world, right? The human institutions that make up his world. And that in itself is a real interesting voice. And both of those components of his worldview strongly come through. Another component of his worldview is that it is highly materialist, uh, meaning that he's concerned about matter rather than spirit or mind. Uh, and what I mean here is that there is a lot in this book about Johnny Rico's physiological needs. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, right? But he's not much of an abstract thinker. He's not necessarily an intellectual, but we learn a lot about his desire to sleep, his desire to eat. And although you're right that we don't get a whole lot of, you know, romance in this novel, Brandon, there are, you know, discussions of that it would be nice to get some uh, some shore leave, get some R&R to have some some chance to do some fraternization with uh, with other people. Uh, in a sort of romantic or sexual manner as well. And so we get a glimpse then into the things that Johnny Rico wants, the things that matter to him, as as well as the, the rhythms of his life and just his attitude towards things. All of that comes through in Heinlein's narrative here in a way that makes Johnny Rico just feel like a real person. And that's hard to do. And it's awesome. Yeah, even though there is an awful lot to critique about the ideas in this novel, it, it, it would be very difficult for me to critique how successful Heinlein is in the presentation of those ideas and in his storytelling techniques, because it's amazing. I mean, this is a great novel, whether you're into it and the ideas or not. <laughs> We should offer up some samples of the, the writing that we appreciated the, the most in this book. Brandon, do you have a passage that really stuck out to you? I do. This is from the chapter that I keep on talking about, the quest chapter, as I call it, chapter 13. And I'm going to read a brief section of where kind of you get the sense that everything is really going wrong and no one quite knows what's happening. That builds the tension, I think, masterfully. So this is what I'm going to read. A necessary plan and very pretty on paper. 
uh, they're talking about capturing the royalty cast here. What it meant to me was that I had an area of 17 by 40 miles, which might be riddled with unstoppable bug holes. I wanted coordinates on each one. If there were too many, well, I might accidentally plug a few and let my boys concentrate on watching the rest. A private in a marauder suit can cover a lot of terrain, but it can look at only one thing at a time. He is not superhuman. I bounced several miles ahead to the first squad, still calling the cherub platoon leader, varying it by calling any cherub officer and describing the pattern of my transponder beacon. No answer. Uh, so it's just such a bit, a tense bit of writing. It's talking about how the plan on paper is going to go wrong. It really sets up what's going to happen in the rest of the chapter. Uh, and it just jumped out to me as a very successful bit of uh, suspense writing, basically, even though it doesn't feel that way in the <laughs> way that I read it uh, because it's taken out of context. But it really fits in the broader, uh, in the broader scheme of the chapter. Now, there is a lot of tension in in the way that there is a lot of tension in the way that Heinlein sets sets all of that up. One of the things I also really like about that particular passage is that it, it very slyly right shows us Johnny Rico, who is here on his first mission, like as a, as an officer, a sort of trainee officer. He's still not actually graduated from his officer training program yet. Uh, simply disobeying orders. Because they're not right that because he's here now on the ground and he wants to adapt the orders to suit their purposes, but he's going to directly disobey them uh, and just slyly says, I'll call it an accident <laughs> that I did this thing I was expressly told not to do because it turns out that doing it is going to actually be better for us fulfilling the mission. And I think that really sums up a lot of Heinlein's attitudes about the way that the military should work, but then also what it means to be uh, an adult, uh, a well-functioning adult in the world, just wrapped up in that one passage that you read. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. The last chapter to me is maybe one of the best no novellas I've ever read. I mean, it is so tense. You don't even need the rest of the novel. It's all right there in that <laughs> last chapter. Well, I have picked a passage from uh, from the basic training segment here. In fact, we uh, we both have alluded to this passage already, and maybe I'm picking it for more uh, personal uh, nostalgia reasons here, but, but, but this is it. I made a very important discovery at Camp Curry. Happiness consists in getting enough sleep. Just that, nothing more. All the wealthy, unhappy people you've ever met take sleeping pills. Mobile infantrymen don't need them. Give a cap trooper a bunk and time to sack out in it, and he's as happy as a worm in an apple. Asleep. And uh, that was very definitely my experience of basic training as well. <laughs> I, I miss that kind of sleep. That just like actual real sleep. Yeah, when you're just sitting in a in a cattle car with two platoons <laughs> and you got 20 minutes of downtime and you're either going to be singing or sleeping and sleeping is always the better choice. <laughs> And, and just being able to nap on command, even standing upright, which there's a whole passage about sleeping while standing upright here as well, sleeping while marching, sleeping and not even knowing you're sleeping. And that really does define the basic training experience. And uh, it's something that Heinlein has really, really nailed here, right? He's really drawn on uh, presumably his own experiences just because they seem to map so strongly onto to mine. They really resonate with me. And I, I loved that about the book. Yeah, me too. 
Well, all right. Well, we are moving out of this episode here, though we are going to still have a second episode where we're going to engage with uh, the the philosophy in this book. But before we leave, we want to talk about the the strengths and the weaknesses here. I always like to end on the strengths. I always like to end on a high note. So we'll we'll do weaknesses first. So, Brandon, just thinking really about this book as a bit of military fiction, thinking about the basic training narrative and the bug war narrative. What's a weakness that you find in this book? Something that maybe doesn't work for you? This was really hard for me to to nail down because most of the weaknesses of my mind in, in, in this novel are ideological. But there's a real slickness in the way that Heinlein writes about how all of the training that Johnny goes through pays off and makes Johnny heroic. And that's great. But all these good people around Johnny are dying. And that just strikes the wrong note with me. Why aren't they heroes? Why are they dying? Why doesn't Johnny care a lot about this? You know, especially, you know, as humans are being kept in prisoner of war camps by the bugs. And yeah, there's some heroic rescue element to the story as well. But mostly people are just dying unceremoniously. And their deaths are used explicitly as a kind of glory propaganda to keep pretty everyone pretty excited about making a real estate deal. And that, to me, is the core weakness of the story. Johnny's unflappable glory-seeking and heroism, even as people who are helpful to him, his you know magical allies, the math tutors, the um, comrades, the all these people are dying around him. He is just unflappable. And that, to me, feels... Icky. I think that dovetails into what I've brought here as well, is that the, the big glaring omission in this story is the psychological toll of soldiering, right? Johnny Rico is jumping out of a spaceship. He is landing on a strange planet and then burning civilians. And he never reflects on that. And no one else ever seems bothered by it either. And even his understanding of what a chaplain is for is to bless the weapons there's nothing in here about what chaplains are for as like counselors, as right. therapists of a sort, right? Which is really what chaplains actually are for. So there is just none of that here. You can just jump out of a spaceship, terrorize civilians, and it's fine. You'll never have a single nightmare about it, I promise. But that's a huge lie, and we know it. It's a huge lie. I mean, I really deeply wanted to open this episode by reading uh, uh Wilfred Owen's poem about the horrors yeah. of war, because I just wanted to start by setting the tone that like, none of this is actually cool. So you know what I mean? So like, this would all be horrifying to be killed in friendly fire from a nuclear blast to be skewered by warrior cast bugs. I mean, to see that happen to your friends, this is not cool. And to have Johnny just be this type of person who's super cool with it and only wants to grow into becoming a better killer and warrior is, uh, as I said, it's icky. Well, I promise you that we are going to read that Wilfred Owen poem, Dolce et Decorum Est, uh, in the second episode when we take this up as an ideology that that Heinlein is is promoting here. And we talked already a little bit about Orson Scott Card, about Ender's Game and Speaker for the Dead as being a response to exactly this omission or part of this omission anyway, right? Uh, Card is responding to the the heavy othering that is going on in this book that Heinlein is doing in this book and, and Card's discomfort with that, right, as a real response. But we do then also have a direct response to this omission, the omission of the psychological toll of killing people, of seeing your friends killed in front of you, learning about 
these horrible things happening back home, uh, how that is going to affect you psychologically. We get the really great response to this book along those lines, The Forever War by Joe Haldeman, which is a, a book, all of these are books I would love to cover on this show uh, someday. And so other people have you know, taken up this book and, and taken it to task for these omissions about what it is to, to be a soldier, what it is to be in the military. Yeah, I mean, it, it reminds me of my favorite Smallville episode when Clark gets married underage because he's dosed with red kryptonite. Uh, and, you know, then in the next episode, his girlfriend dies. He decides he's going to try to make it work. Uh, she gets murdered. And then two days later, his parents come up to the loft. It's just a scene transition they're like you've been here for two days everything should be better now and we just accept it because he's superman but like that's not cool man that would be really hard to go through <laughs> right we needed an entire season that was just young clark kent in therapy which actually is a tv show that i would really like to watch so if someone wants to make that yeah all right so those are the big weaknesses that we found in the military fiction part of the narrative here but brandon what is something that you really loved about this book what was its biggest strength or one of its biggest strengths for you to me, the, the strength of this book is hands down its its structure, combining the quest elements and the he, like hero journey elements with the buildings Roman is very satisfying uh, narratively at the end of the day, even though I will say the two chapters 11 and 12 preceding the real denouement of the novel are a slog. I had to read those in multiple sittings. Well, for me, it was the the voice, right? And then there's a reason that we get, <laughs> that we assigned the uh, talk about the writing craft components the way that we did. This voice just feels so authentic to me. It feels like someone's telling me this story. And that just makes this a real pleasure to read. And I do think that from a writing craft perspective, and, and we'll talk about the other perspective in the next episode, but this is a real masterpiece of storytelling and writing. It is a really engaging book. It is a great story, well told. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I will love this book forever. Uh, and, and part of that's nostalgia, but part of it was reading it again this time and just understanding the narrative technique that we talked about and thinking this this gets better on every read, even though I have more problems with it on every read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree completely. And so I think that is really setting us up for part two for the next episode. So that is going to do it for this one. But we will be back in just a few days with that second part where we really are just going to talk about history and moral philosophy. But Brandon, before we sign off, uh, I just want to say thanks for coming on the show to do an extra episode with me this week. Uh, you don't you don't get any actual sleep here at the network. No, thank you so much. Uh, I was really glad to do this novel with you, and I cannot wait to dig into some uh, moral philosophy and history <laughs> next time. Yeah, that's going to be a blast. Well, I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other shows at claytemplemedia.com, including the two that I host with Brandon, which are Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast, and then also the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. Gene Wolfe, of course, big science fiction writer who also was a, a veteran of the U.S. military, served in the, the Korean War. Uh, I got some military science fiction that we talk about over on that show, if that is your interest. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. And if you're interested in commissioning a bonus episode of your own, you can contact us there or, you know, any of our social media accounts, or you can email us at claytemplemedia at gmail.com. And as I said, we will be back in a few days with part two, in which we are going to finally discuss all the things that I think, anyway, this book is actually <laughs> about. <laughs> but until then, until next time, I hope you'll remember if more of us value 
valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. 